Well, good morning. It's good seeing all of you guys. Welcome uh, to Forest Park. Uh, if you have your Bible, says go ahead and turn to John. We're going to be in John chapter 12. And as we turn to it, let's turn to the Lord as we ask him to reveal truth to us and open up our eyes. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for your incredible mercy and grace. God, I am so grateful for how you've made yourself known to us in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross, through your word, and through your Holy Spirit that illuminates truth to us. God, you know us. You know everything about us. You know what we're thinking. You know how we are feeling. You know our fears, our struggles, our insecurities. You know the idols that we cling to and bow down to. You know us better than we know ourselves. And Lord, as we open up your word, can you meet us where we are? Can you make yourself known to us? Can you help us to understand? Can you help us to see? Can you help us to hear? Can you soften our hearts? Can you convict us? And can you help us to humble ourselves before you? Can you help us to no longer look to ourselves, but look to you and trust you and believe in you and cling to your truths? And Lord, can you help me as I'm trying to wrap my mind around this passage and what that means for us and how it points to you, Lord Jesus? Can you help me to articulate these wonderful truths in a way that brings glory to you and that helps us to understand? So come, Lord, and speak to us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. We're continuing our series through the Gospel of John. And so the longer we study a book, it's so important for us to, as we zoom in on the text, before we zoom in, it's important for us to zoom out. And and what I mean by that is it's important for us to go back to the beginning and understand again, what is the Gospel of John all about? What is he trying to convey? What is his main purpose? Why did he write this? Because we have a tendency to get so in the details of the book that we kind of get lost in the weeds. And so, Again, the reason I'm reminding you of what John is saying and what his purpose is, is not to kind of bore you to death, but kind of help you zoom out before you zoom in and get lost with all the details. And so we said from the very beginning of our series, what is John trying to do? He's trying to show us that Jesus is the Messiah and he is the Son of God. And the way he's been doing it is by showing us how Jesus revealed his glory and also how Jesus is going to receive glory from the Father. And what is his ultimate purpose? Why is he wanting to show his readers? Why is he wanting to show us that Jesus is the Messiah and he is the Son of God? To invite us into belief. Whether you are a believer, he's inviting you in to continue to believe. Whether you're a non-believer, he's inviting you to believe so that you may have life in his name. And this is what he's trying to accomplish. And so with that understanding, we're going to get into our text in John chapter uh, 12, verse 27. 
but a little bit of a context. Like as the Greeks came to Jesus and wanting to see Jesus, in other words, they wanted to interview Jesus. Maybe they had several questions for Jesus. Something triggered Jesus that the hour has come. Now, the hour has always been way in the future. The reason why the Jews couldn't touch him, where no one could arrest him, because his hour had not yet come. And now, all of a sudden, these Greeks are coming and wanting to see Jesus and speak with Jesus. And all of a sudden, the hour has come, which means his death is near. And Jesus indicates to his disciples and to the crowd that was listening that just like a seed has to die in order to produce a harvest, it is necessary for him to die in order to generate life. And as we get in our passage today, you're going to notice that the book of John does not record uh, uh, Jesus' agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. However, The same emotions that we see Jesus express in the Garden of Gethsemane, we're going to see Jesus express in our text today. And what John really does is he gives us a glimpse into the heart of Jesus, why Jesus came, his very purpose. And then a question that I think all of us had is why in the world could the Jews not believe Jesus? Everything he's done, everything he's shown them, Why did they continue in their unbelief? And John's going to tell us about that. But let's look at verse 27. John chapter 12, verse 27. He says, Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. But that is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your Nay. And then a voice from heaven, then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So knowing that the hour has come, John tells us that his soul was troubled. In some of your translations, it will say his heart is troubled. And that verb troubled is a very strong verb because what it signifies, it signifies horror, anxiety, indignation, agitation. Now you can imagine the entire life and ministry of Jesus. He knew the cross was coming. He knew the very reason why he came on this earth is so that he is going to die. And the cross has always been something in the distant future, but now it's becoming more and more of a reality. He knew that he would have to bear the wrath of his Holy Father in the place of sinners. And words cannot even describe how troubled Jesus is. He's deeply troubled. And in his trouble, what does he do? He prays to the Father and he says, Father, save me from this hour. And if you think about it, this this prayer is very similar to the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane where he says, take this cup from me. 
And yet as Jesus is praying to escape this cup, escape this hour, he in a sense accepts his role and then reasserts his commitment to the will and glory of the Father. That's why as he is saying, save me from this hour, he's also saying, but this is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And what we have to understand is this is not some compromise between the tension of the horror that Jesus is going to face and his obedience to the Father, but rather it is an articulation of the principle that controlled his life and his ministry. Because Jesus did not come to do his own will, but rather the will of the Father, the one who sent him, even if that means to the point of death on the cross. And really what we see is a beautiful picture in this prayer of Jesus' humanity, his anguish over the bitter cup that he must drink. And despite this anguish, we see his unwavering commitment to the Father and to the glory of the Father. And really what we see is a glimpse of the gospel. Because what did Jesus come to do? Jesus came to live a perfect life we could not live so that he could die the death we were supposed to die. And so when Jesus finds himself deeply troubled in sorrow, in anguish, what did he do? Did he waver? No, he was unwavering in his commitment to the will of the Father, walking in perfect obedience. In other words, he lived a life we could not live because what happens when we face horror and anguish in our lives? We move to self-preservation, but not Jesus. He doesn't move to self-preservation, but rather in his fight against it, he reminds himself of what did he come to do? To obey the will of the Father, even to the point of death and we see Jesus in his anguish he remains steadfast in his obedience and as he prayed this we find out in verse 28 that a voice came from heaven now if you studied the gospel there's only three instances when a voice from heaven aka the father spoke in an audible voice the first one was his baptism the second one was, anybody remember? Transfiguration. And the third one is right here in our passage. And what does the voice say? The voice says, I have glorified it. In other words, that throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, from his incarnation to all the powerful signs that Jesus has performed, what was happening? The Father's name was glorified. So he says, I have glorified it. And now he's saying, I will glorify it again. And when will he glorify it? Presumably at the death and exaltation of Jesus. The Father's name will be glorified, and so the Son's name will also be glorified. And in other words, really what we see is the Heavenly Father, who has been glorifying his name throughout the ministry of his Son, can be counted on to continue that glorification even in the most climactic hour which is the cross of Jesus Christ. And look at how the crowd responded to this heavenly voice. Look at verse 30, uh, 29. It says this. 
The crowd standing there heard it and said it was thunder. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus responded, this came not for me, but for you. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, I am lifted up from the earth. I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. And so if you like taking notes in your Bible, making marks, this is going to be the main passage that we're going to camp out before we move on. But, but here's something that's really interesting that I want to briefly talk about, okay? Just think about this for a little bit. Jesus' soul is deeply troubled. And in a sense, he alone is the one who hears the voice and understood it. Others thought it was a thunder or an angel, but Jesus understood exactly what the Father said, and more than likely, eventually, he conveyed this message to the disciples so that John could record it in his gospel. And the question is, if Jesus was the one who was deeply troubled, if he was the one who clearly understood what this word said, how was it for their benefits and not for Jesus' benefits. And so I think a couple of things that we need to understand here, brief comments, and then we'll move on. When we look at verse 30, it says this, then verse 30, this voice came not for me, but for you. In other words, what he means by that is this voice was for the benefit, main benefits of the crowd. But it doesn't mean Jesus did not benefit from it. But we also have to understand Jesus did not need to hear this voice in order to be obedient because he has already determined in his heart to his unwavering commitment to the Father. So it wasn't the voice that kind of helped him to obey. He's already determined to obey. However, I can imagine that this voice from heaven, God speaking, was simply words of comfort for him. But now, how did it benefit the disciples? How did it benefit the crowd? I think the heavenly voice was an enormous benefit for the disciples, even though they probably didn't understood what it said at that time, possibly couldn't digest the truth of what was going on eventually after the cross, after the resurrection, after the exaltation of Jesus. They would have remembered the voice that was uttered and the message that Jesus told them this voice said. And what that would have done is that would have given them divine confirmation that the shameful cross and all that flowed from it was not a defeat but a victory it did not end in final destruction but an ultimate glorification and then for the crowd if they had any spiritual sensibilities when a voice is thundering from heaven, whether you could understood what exactly it said, should that not have stirred up something divine or significant is happening? And in a sense, it should have. And in a sense, it set Jesus up to explain the significance of this hour and what exactly is going on. 
And so Jesus unpacks what's happening at the coming of his hour in the glorification of the Son. Let's look at verse 31 as Jesus explaining what is going to happen at his glory. He says, Now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And as for me, I am lifted up from the earth, and I will draw all people to myself. So if you're taking notes at the glorification of the Son, the hour that is coming, the first thing that we learn is that the glorification of the Son is the time for judgment on this world. The glorification of the Son is the time for judgment on this world. And this is why Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now think with me for a little bit here. Judgment, in a sense, is reserved for the end of the age, correct? When is judgment coming? At the very end. But what does Jesus say? But the text says, now judgment begins. So in other words, what we're seeing is not only is judgment reserved for the end of the age, but judgment is also coming now with Jesus on the cross. In other words, what we see is judgment is both negative and positive in what he's talking about today that's coming on this world. Negatively, the judgment is coming because you have wicked men who's committing the most vilest, the most wickedest of action of killing, crucifying the Son of God. And there's no hope for them as they are rejecting Christ and judgment is going to fall on them or has fallen on them. In a sense, judgment is negative. But then judgment is also positive. Because as Jesus is being crucified, as Jesus is being killed by wicked men, Jesus is also a sacrifice. The sacrificial lamb of God. And in a sense, Judgment is falling on Jesus instead of on people who are trusting in Jesus. So we see what he is saying. Now judgment is coming. Judgment is coming on those wicked people who are crucifying him. And judgment is coming on himself where he will bear the judgment of those who are trusting in him. And this is what Jesus means. At the glorification of the Son, now judgment is coming in the world. The second thing at the glorification of the Son, if you're taking notes, is this, is that the glorification of the Son is the time when the ruler of this world will be cast out. It's the time when the ruler of this world will be cast out, or in some of your translations, it will say driven out. Who is this ruler of this world? Satan. He's the ruler of this world. And although the cross might seem like Satan has won, in a sense, the cross was Satan's defeat. In one sense, Satan was defeated by the outbreaking power of the kingdom of God when Jesus comes to inaugurate the kingdom of God, when he was doing all of the evil that that Satan has done, undoing it by opening up the eyes of the blind, the ears of the deaf, raising the dead, giving sight to the blind, and the lame are walking. But the final blow, the final defeat, 
was at the cross of Christ. The fundamental smashing of the reign of Satan, who was a tyrannical ruler, took place at the death of Jesus. And when Jesus took his throne on the cross, Satan was dethroned. And I think we kind of see this apocalyptic picture in Revelation 12, verse 11, where the followers of the Lamb overcomes the dragon by the blood of the Lamb. When Jesus was glorified to heaven by means of the cross and throne, then too was Satan dethroned. What residual power Satan enjoyed was further restricted by the Holy Spirit. And so in a sense, in Jesus' death, in his glorification, he's bringing judgment on the world that's both negative and positive. Negative for those who are killing him and refusing to accept him and put his trust in him, but positive for those who are trusting him where judgment is falling on Jesus himself. And even at the cross, Satan is being cast out. Satan is being driven out. He is dethroned because through death, Christ has secured victory. And the third one, if you're taking note, is that the glorification of the Son is the time when Jesus is lifted up from the earth. The glorification of the Son is the time when Jesus is lifted up from the earth. Now, this phrase of being lifted up from the earth kind of is a play on all words because there's two meanings to it. What does it mean? The first meaning is the cross, where Jesus on the cross is lifted up. And the second one is, in a sense, him being lifted up from the earth. He, in a sense, is being exalted. So not only is Jesus being glorified on the cross as he's being lifted up, but he's also glorified as he's being raised from the dead and, in a sense, exalted. And so in this death, this humiliating death, he's being glorified as he's being lifted up, showing us that the pathway to glory is death. And so as the Son is about to be glorified, showing us that judgment on the world has come, that the ruler of this world will be cast out as the Son of Man will be lifted up on the cross in his humiliation. At the same time, he will also be glorified. The consequences of that, if you're taking notes, is that the glorification of the Son is that will draw all people to himself. He will draw all people to himself. Now, think about the significance of all people here. Who were the people that came to interview Jesus or wanting to interview Jesus? They were Greeks. In a sense, they were Gentiles. And when they wanted to interview Jesus, it triggered that the hour has come. And now what Jesus is saying is, consequently, as I am being lifted up on the cross, I will draw all people to myself. In other words, what does all people mean? It doesn't mean all people. It means all people without distinction, which means both Jews and Gentiles alike are being drawn to Jesus. It does not mean all people without exception. Because if it was all people without exception, there's no judgment that is coming. But we've just read that judgment is coming. Is judgment coming? Absolutely. There's no hope for those who've rejected Jesus Christ. But there's certainly hope for us who've accepted him and trusted him. For judgment will not fall on us, but rather judgment has fallen on 
Jesus. And because he was lifted up, all people without distinction, Jews and Gentiles can now have access to God. And where the Greeks were only able to enter into the outer courts of the temple because they were not Jewish, now what Jesus is saying, they have free access to the Father because of what I have done as I'm drawing them in. That means for us, we have access to God. There's no restrictions anymore. We can enter into his presence, not because of what we've done, but rather because what Christ has done on our behalf. And in those couple verses, Jesus says so much, and I know I'm hardly doing justice to what Jesus is saying, but look at how the crowd responded in verse 34. It says, Then the crowd replied to him, We've heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Jesus answered, The light will be with you only a little longer. Walk while you have the light so that darkness doesn't overtake you. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you might become children of light. And Jesus said this, then went away and hid from them. So in a sense, the crowd did not understand this concept that the pathway to glory is death. Because in their mind, they were thinking, the Son of Man, the Messiah, is a victorious one. And if you are victorious, and if you conquer, there's no death. Death cannot be involved in us. If he's triumphant, he should be living eternal. But here Jesus is talking about death. And so what they're doing is they're turning to Jesus and in their question of who the Son of Man is, they're not seeking simply an identification, but rather demands from Jesus, what kind of Son of Man, what kind of Messiah do you have in mind that is going to die? And I think the odd thing is Jesus doesn't answer their questions. But rather what he does, he says, walk in the light while you still have the light. Because the light's not going to be with you much longer. In other words, what he's reiterating again is his impending death. And while you still have the light with you, turn to the light so that you might become children of the light. I can spend another hour just unpacking, but but let's move on here. So what Jesus is showing us is his heart, deeply troubled by his death that is coming. And yet we see his unwavering commitment to the Father. And in his unwavering commitment to the Father, he shares with the disciples and with the crowd, even though they don't understand anything, why he came. He will be glorified. And as he's glorified on the cross, judgment will be coming. As he's glorified on the cross, what's going to happen is that the ruler of this world will be dethroned. He will be lifted up. And in consequence, draw all men without distinction, both Jews and Gentiles, to himself. And they didn't get it. What son of man are you talking about? Because in our book, no triumphal son of man is their death. What do you mean? 
And so here's the question. I don't know if you guys had this question in your life groups or maybe in your personal walk with the Lord as you're studying the scripture. Maybe you've had, maybe you haven't, or maybe now I'm bringing this question up. But think about this. After everything that Jesus has done, all the miracles he's performed, all of the signs, opening up the eyes of a man born blind, raising the dead, fulfilling prophecy, declaring with authority the word of God. How in the world could the Jews not believe in him? Like you're reading the Gospels and some of you might be scratching your head like why in the world could the Jews not believe in Jesus out of everything he has done? What was missing? Where was the disconnect? Is that a question you guys had or am I the only one that had that question? Anybody? All right, raise your hand. Don't make me feel alone. Y'all had the question? Okay, let me give you the answer. You're not going to like it, but this is John's answer, not mine. This is what John says in verse 37. He says, even though he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. Okay, well, why not? Verse 38. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, who said, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is why they were unable to believe because Isaiah also said he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke about him. So what is John saying? John, in a sense, says, even though Jesus performed all of these signs, all of these miracles, they were unable to believe. Why? In order to fulfill Scripture. So in other words, if you're taking notes, here's the reason for the Jews' unbelief. The unbelief was not only predicted by Scripture, but it was also necessitated by Scripture. In other words, not only was it predicted by Scripture, not only was it to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah, but also was necessitated by Scripture. In other words, if you look at verse 40, who is the one who's making, blinding their eyes and hardening their hearts? What does Isaiah say? Who's the one? I can't hear you. God is the one. So in other words, what John is saying is the reason why they could not believe is because Scripture predicted it. And because God was the one who closed their eyes and hardened their heart. And so now he quotes in verses 40, he quotes Isaiah chapter 6 verse 10. So, Let's do some heavy lifting. Are you guys ready to do some heavy lifting? Because I feel like I'm losing you. Okay, let, let's talk about this here. Let, let me unpack what does it mean by their unbelief was predicted by Scripture and necessitated by Scripture. What does Isaiah mean in his passage? In Isaiah 6 verse 10, he's blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts in turn and I would heal them. 
What's happening in Isaiah chapter 6, and I think most of you are familiar with this story, but if you're not, here's what's going on in the context of Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah, the prophet, appears before the Lord, and in a vision he sees the Lord of glory. And as a result of him seeing the Lord of glory, he cries out, he says, woe am I. In other words, what he is saying is, I am ruined. I am good as dead because I am standing before a holy God and I'm realizing how unholy I am. I am a man of unclean lips. I am a man who lives with unclean people. In other words, what Isaiah is recognizing as he stands before the holiness of God, that he is unholy and that God is a holy God that consumes anything that is unholy. So he says, I'm ruined. I'm done with. I'm destroyed. The only reason I can possibly make it is if God somehow intervenes on my behalf. And what does the Lord do? An angel comes and he takes a piece of coal and he touches his mouth and says, now you are clean and your iniquity is removed and your sin has been atoned for. In other words, the only way for Isaiah to stand before the Lord and not be destroyed if God provides for him to stand before him. And what does the Lord do through the angel? He provides a means to be his sin to be atoned for. And then return, as Isaiah is just in gratitude that he was not destroyed by the Holy Lord. He volunteers to be a messenger. And as he volunteers to be the messenger, the Lord commissions him and says, Isaiah, I want you to go and I want you to speak. But here's the deal. No one is going to listen to you. No one is going to be able to understand you. No one is going to see the truth. They are going to ignore you. They are going to scorn you. They are going to reject you. Basically, it's saying, go, your ministry is going to be fruitless. And so what does Isaiah do? In his full knowledge being commissioned by the Lord, he goes and he proclaims, knowing the results will be negative. And in a sense, God himself, through the prophet, is the one who is hardening the people's hearts, closing their ears and closing their eyes so that they cannot understand. And so here's the big question. Like, how do we make sense of God hardening hearts? Like, does, does that truth kind of, is that uncomfortable for some of you? Well, like, 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 like how do we make sense of, of, of God sending a messenger only to shutting up their ears and their eyes so that they do not understand. Like, how do we make sense if God is the one who is shutting their eyes and hardening their hearts? Now, I didn't have time in your, in your bulletin to have fill in the blank because, again, there was just so much in the passage. But there's a couple points I, I want you to make, and maybe you can write them down. And they're easy points, and I'm going to try to explain it to the best of my ability. Here's the first thing that we have to understand with God hardening hearts. In a sense, God, God hardening hearts represents the sovereignty of God. And what we have to understand in our discussion with this the first, very first thing we have to establish and understand is this, that the sovereignty of God does not take away the responsibility of man. 
Like both of these truths are true. What does the Bible teach about the sovereignty of God? Is God sovereign? Yes. Does the Bible teach that man's responsible? Yes, these two truths do not contradict each other, but rather they coincide with each other. Both are true. You cannot accept the one and reject the other. You have to accept both. So that's the very first thing we have to establish. When we talk about that the Lord is sovereign and he hardens heart, that is not me saying you have no responsibility. You are completely responsible for all of your actions and all of your decisions. And God is completely responsible for being sovereign and opening up eyes and closing eyes, softening hearts and hardening hearts. Both exist. So again, where do we get to God hardening hearts? The second thing we have to understand, and this is very important, when God hardens hearts, he's not hardening the heart of a morally neutral or morally pure person okay he doesn't take a morally neutral person or a morally pure person and hardens their hearts because all of us are not morally neutral and we're not morally pure we are what kind of people we're immoral people so when God hardens the heart, he doesn't harden the one of a morally neutral, morally pure people, but rather when he hardens heart, it is a holy condemnation of guilty people who are condemned to do what they have already decided to do. In other words, when God hardens the heart of a person, it is God's holy condemnation of a guilty person that has already determined in his mind what he is going to do. And here, I think here's an example that will make uh, maybe sense for you. Uh, think about in the Bible, where do we read about God hardening hearts in the Bible, in the very first part of the Bible? Pharaoh. Okay, very good. You guys are with me here. Pharaoh, what is Pharaoh done? Pharaoh... In his mind, what does he do? He enslaved God's people, refused to let them go, and he ordered the execution of all baby boys. He told the Egyptian midwives, make sure you kill all the Hebrew baby boys. Now, was Pharaoh a morally neutral or a morally pure person? No. What has Pharaoh already determined in his heart? I'm going to enslave these people for my own personal use and I'm going to annihilate any certain opposition. So the more they breed, I am going to oppress them so much and dehumanize them by killing their very own offspring. And what did God do? As Pharaoh has already determined in his heart what he's going to do, God, in a sense, hardened his heart by condemning him, saying, you know what, Pharaoh? Have at it. Let me give yourself over to your sinful self, harden your heart and what you've already determined to do. And this is why Paul in Romans 1 verse 24 says, Therefore God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts. In other words, what Paul's argument is saying, here's these wicked people, they have exchanged the truth for a lie. Instead of worshiping the creator, they're worshiping creation, they're worshiping rocks, they're fulfilling their own sexual desires, doing whatever they want to do. And you know what God did? He says, you want it? Have at it. And one of the most horrendous things that God could possibly do in his most holy judgment condemnation is by you, giving you over to your 
sinful self, to your own depravity and say, have at it, buddy. This is what it means for God to harden hearts. Now, that's very depressing because if we are not morally neutral nor morally pure people, which means we are sinful people, our hearts are hard, And when God hardens our heart, he basically gives us over to our sinful self to do what we've already decided to do. What hope is there in it? And I think in the sovereignty of God, there's great hope. Because the third thing we have to understand is that if if we are evil, We're wicked people. Our hearts are hard. We are not morally neutral or morally pure people, but rather we are immoral people. Who has the power to take a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh? Only a sovereign God. So the sovereignty of God, as much as it should scare the bejeebies out of us, and it should, it should also give us the greatest hope. Because who has the power to take the vilest of sinner and transform into a saint? Who has the power to take the hardest of heart and make it a soft heart? Only a sovereign God. And so what that means is, and this is why that Isaiah the prophet understood that God is holy, God is sovereign, and he's been commissioned to, to, to proclaim this message knowing that God is closing their eyes, hardening their hearts. This is why Isaiah is pleading with the Lord. Lord, please reveal yourself in a more merciful way. Can you please not harden their hearts anymore, but open up their eyes, soften their hearts, I beg you. This is why we, as Christians, pray for our non-believing friends and family members. Because when we pray, what are we saying? Lord, open up their eyes, soften their hearts. Now, I know the Pharaoh story is just really depressing, and you're looking at yourself or maybe to your, to your child or to your friends, and you're like thinking, yeah, there's no hope for that guy. But think about another story of hope. Remember the the other guy had a pretty hard heart? I think his name was Saul. What, What did Saul do? He killed Christians. His life mission was eradicate the name of Jesus and disciple of Jesus from the face of the earth. So he dragged men, women, and children out into the streets, tricked them to blaspheme them so that the first rock can be thrown at them and kill them, throw them in jail, doesn't care about their life whatsoever. And his entire mission was to eradicate all Christians and Jesus from the face of the earth. Was he a morally neutral and pure person? No. What was the difference between Saul and Pharaoh? Absolutely nothing. And yet, what did the Lord do? The Lord made himself known to Saul by opening up his eyes, by actually blinding him, and revealing himself as Jesus, the Lord of all. And Saul was radically converted from the one who persecuted to now the proclaimer of the gospel, willing to face persecution because of the life of of Jesus and the question is okay well why did the Lord do this to Pharaoh but not to Saul and the answer is I have no idea other than the Lord is sovereign and he can take the hardest 
of heart. And he can condemn them even further. Or he can take that heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. And the only thing we can say is the Lord is sovereign and his sovereign grace is showing grace. But another part we have to understand is, okay, God is sovereign. When he hardens hearts, he's, already, he's condemning somebody to do what they've already decided to do in his heart. And that, in a sense, gives us hope, the sovereignty of God, knowing that he can take somebody whose heart is really hard, whose eyes are really shut, whose ears are really like clogged, and there's no way they can understand it. He can somehow radically transform them. So that gives us hope to intercede on behalf of people and ask the Lord to save them. But then the last point what we have to understand is this. In Isaiah's day, the Lord had a purpose in hardening hearts because the commissioning of Isaiah's apparent fruitless ministry at that stage was a strange work. But the strange work also had a redemptive purpose. So in other words, what I mean by that is when the Lord hardens hearts, as strange as it might seem to us, there is a redemptive purpose to it. So, for example, in Isaiah, there was redemptive purpose. And even in the Gospel of John, there was a redemptive purpose of the Jews' hearts being hardened. And Paul tells us in Romans 11, the reason why the Jews rejected Jesus and not wanting to believe in the Messiah, what was the redemptive purpose? to take us Gentiles and graft us into the tree, to take us non-Jewish people and bring us into the family. And what Paul is saying is in that strange work, he hardened their hearts to bring us in. But their hardening is not a permanent hardening, but rather he will graft them back in as the people of God. So their rejection is not final. And so what we learn from that is that the hardening that God does has a redemptive purpose and he is sovereign over it and we can trust him with it and this is the answer that john gives us but what does that mean for us i think the thing we have to learn that we see throughout scripture and i think one of the things wrong things we've learned in our culture today is we think that to put our faith in Jesus is something that we have to muster up because we believe faith comes from us but that's not what the Bible teaches what does the Bible teach where does faith come from faith is a gift from the Lord faith is a gift from the Lord and without the Lord opening up our eyes opening up our ears softening our hearts and giving us the ability to believe we cannot believe the gospel demands a response and the only response is a response of humility if you think about it the one whose heart is hard whose eyes are shut 
They cannot respond to the gospel because they're so consumed with self in their pride because they look at it and say, makes no sense. I think I'm a better savior. I think I can try harder. I think I can do better. And that really is a response of pride. But the person who believes is the person whose eyes have been opened, whose ears have been opened, whose heart has been softened, and they are just like Isaiah saying, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. I am unholy. God is holy. There's no hope for me unless somehow God has intervened. And the good news is he has. How? Through the person of Jesus Christ who died in your place carried the wrath that was supposed to be out on you, the condemnation that was supposed to come on you, the judgment that was supposed to come on you. He faced it on your behalf. And that response in humility is a gift from the Lord, and that should stir in us a gratitude. Like the sovereignty of God shouldn't crush his people, it should encourage us, because think about it. You were like Pharaoh. You had a hard heart. Your eyes were shut. Your ears were clogged. You were rebellious. And God did not give you over to your sinful self. But he made himself known. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And you know what that owl should be doing for you? Wanting that for everybody else. So what do you do? You fall on your knees before the sovereign Lord, asking him to intervene, asking him to intercede. And despite these Jews who could not believe, there were some who believed, but unfortunately their faith was was really weak because they cared more about the fear of what man thought than what God thought. Look Look at verse 40, uh, 41, verse 42. Nevertheless, <clears throat> many did believe in him, even among the rulers. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him so that they would not be banned from the synagogues, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. That sentence, verse 43, just hit me. How many of us do we love more praise from man than praise from God? How many of us are not wanting to humble ourselves because we're afraid of what that would look like and what that will mean for us? And really what this verse does, it shows us the condition of our human heart, which really is at the heart of idolatry. Because these Jews cared more about their welfare, their comfortability, their security, their acceptance, and their power. And they were so busy bowing down to these idols. And as they were bowing down to these idols, the idols were blinding them. That they couldn't confess him. Because they thought these idols is what gives them hope. These idols is that what protects them. And that's what idols do. Idols convince you that it satisfies and fulfills and it gives you life. And we've all known it's all empty promises. 
And this is why we're not going to read the passage. You can read verse 44 to 50 uh, for your homework this evening. This is why Jesus calls, he cries out a call to believe. He says, come, you sinner, you poor, you needy. I did not come to judge the world. I came to restore it. I came in the authority of the Father and the love of the Father to demonstrate it by sacrificing myself on the cross. He came to save us and to make us like him. And what's the purpose of John? What is John trying to do? Show us that Jesus is the Messiah and the purpose is inviting us to believe so that we may have life. And so the call to Jesus and the call to the gospel is for you to believe, for you to humble yourself, for you to let go of the idols that are empty in their promises, that are not satisfying, that are not life-giving, and in humility turn to him, asking the Lord, open up my eyes, Soften my heart. Help me to see and understand, trusting in the provision that he has made on our behalf. We're out of time. If you think about this table, this table reminds us of the provision that God has made. It is a visual reminder that you are not the Savior. You needed a savior. On your own, you're unable to sit at the table. But because of the provision of Christ on the cross, as you humble yourself and receive it, you're invited to sit because of what Christ has accomplished for you. What a wonderful benefit. What incredible grace that he has lavished on us to prepare a table for us and to invite us to come and feast on the provision that he has made for us. That in our struggles and in our spiritual battle, we are reminded of the provision of Jesus Christ on the cross. We are not the Savior. We were dead in our sins. We were poor and needy sinners, immoral, waging war against God. And yet Christ has borne that wrath and his judgment upon himself. And now that he looks at us, he does not see us as enemies, but as children. So we can come and we can eat and we're reminded of what Christ has done for us and the privilege that we get to share in Christ. And the hope of, of this is what that should stir in your heart is a greater adoration and appreciation and love for the Lord because all that he's done for you, that despite you, he saved you. Open up your eyes and soften your heart. Let me pray for us and then we'll distribute these elements. Lord, thank you for this incredible gift, the incredible provision that you have made for us. Lord, I do pray that you'd help us to see ourselves as Pharaoh. Our hearts were hard. And in your sovereignty, you intervened and you softened it and opened up our eyes. You did not give us over to our sinful selves. But you came. And by your sovereign grace, lavished an incredible mercy and grace upon us. Lord, may that give us a wonderful confidence and assurance in you 
And may that stir a greater adoration for you. And Lord, for those who do not know you, for those who are not trusting you, Lord, I beg you, can you show them mercy? Can you open up their eyes? Can you convict them of their sin? Can you take their hard hearts and remove it and give them a heart of flesh? Please, Lord Jesus, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we take these elements, we are reminded of the provision that God has made for us. The incredible mercy and grace that our minds cannot fully comprehend. That while we were enemies of God, actively at war against him, God did not give us what we deserve, but he sent his son to die in our place. It is through his body that is given to us. Eat it in remembrance of him. And it's through his blood that was shed for us that made atonement for all of our sins. The new covenant we have, drink it in remembrance of him. And as we eat and as we drink, our only response to God's provision is awe and gratitude of how could God save a wretch like me? How could God take somebody as blind and as stubborn, as prideful, and as wicked as me and not give me what I deserve? but give himself to me. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Just take a moment and just praise the Lord for the salvation he's accomplished for you. Thank the Lord for his grace and mercy that he's lavished on you. Lord, we thank you for your word we thank you for that you've made yourself known and we thank you that you did not give us what we deserved we thank you for the provision that you've made for us in Christ and the life eternal life that you've given us we will continue to stir in us a heart and affection for you as we worship you and as we, in, as we are in all of you and we ask all of this in Jesus name Amen.